Well, today is Palm Sunday, and we are celebrating Jesus' entry into the city of Jerusalem, often called the triumphal entry uh, into the city of Jerusalem. And we'll be reading uh, this account out of Matthew's Gospel, Matthew 21, uh, 1 to 11. But it's mentioned in all four Gospels. So I'll be, I'll be bringing in some of the commentary from uh, Mark, Luke, and John about this as well. So uh, Matthew 21, 1 through 11 as they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, uh, the house of figs, a small village on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Zechariah. Zechariah 9.9, you can see this reference. Say to daughter Zion, Zion being another name for Jerusalem, See, your king comes to you gentle and riding on a donkey, and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The context here is that Jesus uh, has made his way from the north of Israel, uh, uh, coming south, but now going up. If you're in Israel... And you say you're going to Jerusalem, no matter where you are in that country, north or south, east or west, you always say, we're going up to Jerusalem because it's the highest uh, point. So, uh, here we are. Jesus stops in Bethany, a small town, where his friends Mary, Martha, and Lazarus live. Uh, And he's there because uh, Lazarus has died. And so he comes into a, a situation of grief and loss, and uh, Martha says to Jesus, you know, if he'd been here sooner, maybe he would have lived. Uh, Jesus uh, weeps, not because of what she said to him. He's weeping over the loss of his friend Lazarus. And at that point, he, he says, Lazarus, come forth. Now, Lazarus has been in the grave, uh, I think, three days. Sounds symbolic, doesn't it? And so Lazarus comes out, and they celebrate Lazarus's life. So now you got the buzz going out. Oh, my gosh, Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. So from Bethany, he goes to the next village, Bethphage. Now he's at the top of this beautiful place uh, overlooking uh, the city of Jerusalem. Quite stunning. Uh, if, if you've been there, you know, if you can ever get there and you come over that hill, it's breathtaking to see uh, coming up from Jericho in the desert, those low foothills, and all of a sudden you're coming over and you see the entire panorama. Very, very beautiful. But, but think about this. You know, there's anticipation because it's Passover week everybody's excited to be there. People from uh, the immediate area, certainly the people in Jerusalem are excited. People from the immediate area uh, called Judea are excited. People from north, south, east, and west are coming to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover. It's one of the big four festivals of the year, and it's one of those things that everybody aspires at some point to celebrate Passover uh, in Jerusalem. In fact, at the end of every Passover dinner, this week is, uh, is Passover week, basically, uh, and so during that Passover week, there'll be a dinner called a seder, S-E-D-E-R, means order. Uh, so a dinner in a very specific order to celebrate uh, the rescue of Israel from the Egyptians in slavery. Very profound, powerful story. At that seder dinner, at the end of that dinner, anybody who is celebrating uh, Passover uh, and, and in that seder dinner, which is half of people who are Jewish, of the people in the world that are Jewish live in Israel. Uh, The other uh, 53% 
uh, live elsewhere, right? So anybody who doesn't live in Jerusalem, when they celebrate the Seder during Passover this week, they will say, next year in Jerusalem. Next year in Jerusalem. It's that important to, to the Jewish people to be able to celebrate Passover in Jerusalem. So the city is being flooded with pilgrims uh, coming in to uh, celebrate Passover. And as they come into the city, as they make that ascent from the desert, from either the, the, the western side, the sea, or the eastern side of the desert, as they come up toward Jerusalem, they're reciting about 15 different psalms. Uh, I think it's 120 to 134 that are called these Psalms of Ascent. And the people are singing these songs, celebrating Jerusalem and, and God's goodness and, and all of His promises. And so it's very, very powerful, very emotional. It's a big, big moment. So here comes Jesus riding a donkey. Now, to our ears, this is so absurd. When have you ever seen a Western where the hero in that Western, Clint Eastwood, comes riding into town on a donkey? It wouldn't be very impressive. That would be a sort of a mock of, of the Wild West, right? Uh, when you go to a rodeo, if you've ever been to one, uh, if you haven't, I hope you get to, uh, the big event isn't somebody riding a donkey. It's, it's riding a bull, riding a, a, an untamed horse. So here Jesus comes and it's all this fanfare and he's riding a donkey. And the disciples went out and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt, placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. Now the powerful uh, fulfillment of Zechariah 9.9 is that this is a picture of a king in complete repose as it relates to his power and authority. He's so powerful he can ride a donkey. And a donkey then at this point is a symbol of peace. That this king is so powerful that he brings peace. And he doesn't need an army or a big charger or, or a great chariot. He just rides a donkey. What John adds to this, only after Jesus was glorified, that is, risen from the dead, ascended into heaven, only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him and that about him, and that these things had been done to him. Now the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to spread the word. Many people, because they had heard that he had performed this sign, went out to meet him. Uh, so this is a big event because it's Passover and because the word is out that Jesus has raised someone from the dead, which implies to everybody God is up to something. Now God is always up to something. But in this case, it was very focused because Passover was this time of anticipation. God break the yoke of the Romans and the other Gentiles that assail us and assault us like he did the Egyptians. So the Pharisees said to one another, see, this is getting us nowhere. Our attempts to suppress Jesus, to, to shout him down, to trip him up, to discount him and everything he says and does is not working. They say, look how the whole world has gone after him. Now, it, it's a hyperbolic statement. It's an exaggeration. But in terms of the world they're inhabiting, it seems like everybody is abuzz with uh, this news about Jesus. 
Matthew continues, a very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Now, again, uh, from another gospel, John's gospel tells us that these are palm branches. That's why this is called Palm Sunday. Matthew continues, the crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, and, and here's what, what Mark adds to this, blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Blessing is the coming kingdom of our father David. It was through David's house that the Messiah would come, the deliverer of Israel. Now whether or not these people think Jesus is God, uh, for sure uh, they are thinking that he is somehow attached to God's promise to deliver Israel through the house of David. Do you see what's building here? A sense of destiny focused on the nation of Israel. So it's a nationalistic moment. Things are going to be finally set right in Israel. God is finally going to do what we are expecting and anticipating Him to do. Matthew tells us that people were crying out, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. Now Hosanna means save us, help us. If you had the opportunity to stand before the king as, as people did before David, they would say, Hosanna, a version of that word, Hosanna, help us, save us. And so they're using it in this case as, a, as an expression of praise. Praise be uh, to this person who comes in the name of the Lord Jesus. But Hosanna, save us, help us. This is our moment for redemption and restoration and rescue. But they don't understand what Jesus has come to do. Often we, too, are so focused on what we want, what we need, our timetable, our schedule. We're saying, Lord, this is what it is. Don't miss it. Do this. Do this now. And he's saying, you know, there's a larger context. You know, every time God works in your life, uh, it's personal to you, and he's focusing on your needs, certainly, but he's always up to something else. God is always doing lots of things. So sometimes the timing isn't right because God is waiting to do something in a time that would touch a lot of other people or be right for you. So this is a very powerful, powerful moment. Now Luke adds, uh, he says, some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, teacher, rebuke your disciples. Why rebuke your disciples? Well, because your disciples seem to think that Jesus, that you, Jesus, are the Messiah. Of course, Jesus believes he is, but the Pharisees don't. So they're offended. They were offended when he, he, he said, the Father and I are one. Uh, and they picked up stones to kill him. And he said, why, why are you picking up stones? Because of the things I've done? No, because you being a man have claimed to be God. So the Pharisees are absolutely fed up with this. And while he was up in the north of Israel, Galilee, or other parts of the, of the country, saying and doing these things, it was fine. But all of a sudden now, it's their turf. It's Jerusalem. You can't do that here. Not in our house. Rebuke your disciples. I tell you, Jesus replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. If they keep quiet, if people stop calling out, the stones themselves will call out. Paul picks this up in his letter to the Corinthians. He says, the whole creation is groaning, anticipating what God will do. You can imagine all creation saying, oh, finally, God has come. God is in the house. I love the way uh, some songwriters have, have, have put this uh, regarding Jesus. When you walk into the room, everything changes. 
Darkness starts to tremble at the light you bring. And when you walk into the room, every heart starts burning. And nothing matters more than sitting at your feet. When you walk into the room, sickness starts to vanish. And every hopeless situation ceases to exist. When you walk into the room, the dead begin to rise because there is resurrection life in all you do. So this is what the Pharisees are saying. Stop them from expecting this. Stop them from acknowledging this. Stop them from calling and praising you for this. But if I do, the stones will cry out. And so it says, as Jesus approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it. He wept over it. If God, if anybody ever tells you that God doesn't really care or why would the world be in this situation, the fact is that God cares immensely. God cares personally. He weeps over this world. He weeps over the decisions we make, the choices that we make, the priorities that we make, the things that we substitute for him, the things that we invoke in his name that are not of him and don't square with his word. He wept over Jerusalem. And he said, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. You can't see what I'm doing. All you can see is what you want in terms of a nationalistic reversal of the power structure. You want the Romans out. You want the Gentiles out. Have you forgotten? It's if Jesus could say to them, have you forgotten that the promise to Abraham, your forefather, was this? I will bless all nations through you. You will be a light to the nations. Every family on earth will be blessed through you. You are my chosen people through whom I want to deliver this word of hope and give this uh, help to redeem what has been lost through your disobedience. You see the power of this? This is a universal moment, not just a nationalistic moment. And so the people are so fixated on that. And Jesus is saying, I'm weeping over the city because you don't even see what's going to happen. He says, the days will come upon you when your enemies build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of the Lord's coming to you. Then a generation the Romans will, in fact, surround and build an embankment and destroy Jerusalem. They will level it. It'll be rock upon rock. It will look like a quarry, a gravel pit. The people are banished. This happens again. This happens in A.D. 70. It happens again in uh, A.D. 135. Jesus is saying, you're holding on to these nationalistic aspirations You've lost your sense of who you are in my mission to the world. And I'm heartbroken over that. We want Jesus on our terms. But it doesn't work that way. We need to accept Jesus on his terms. Come, Lord Jesus. Allow me to be part of what you're doing. Versus saying, Jesus, you must be part of what I am doing or what I want you to do. Because when we want to be part of what he's doing, it actually includes all of our aspirations ultimately. Either our aspirations change and are aligned with his, we, we let go of them because we realize, well, wow, that was too small a vision. That was an inadequate mission that I had in mind. Or we see his largeness, his beauty, his greatness, his magnificence for the first time and say, this is what I've been living for. This is what I've been yearning for. In your marriage, in your family, in your role as a parent, in your role as a, a child or a sibling, 
in your role uh, as a student, a person in the marketplace, whose plan do you want for your life? Yours or God's? I guarantee you want God's. Or, or else you'll be weeping along with Jesus. Why did I do what I did? Why didn't I avail myself of what God himself wanted to do in me and through me? You did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. Do you recognize that this is the time that God is coming to you? That God is renewing and reminding you of who he is and what he's about during this holy week? Matthew tells us when Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, who is this? Are you asking that question? We have to ask this question continually. Who is this? Who is Jesus? Is it the Jesus that I'm projecting him to be, expecting him to be? Or am I really seeing Jesus for who he is? What does God's word tell me about who Jesus is? What does Jesus tell me about himself? So what do we see in Jesus as he enters Jerusalem in his final week? Well, we see the one that we talked about weeks ago. Jesus, the good shepherd, revealing the Father's heart for us with humility and vulnerability. Humility, I've come to serve. Vulnerability, I'm, I'm willing to risk to serve you, to save you. We see Jesus, the healer, whose signs and wonders point to the Father. The Jesus who brings empathy, that he cares about us, compassion. He does something about it. He heals. He performs signs and wonders that point to the Father. We've talked about Jesus, the teacher, confirming his relationship to the Father and his authority and influence from the Father. And now today we're talking about uh, Jesus, the leader, who fulfills his mission from the Father, for the Father, on our behalf. This is the Jesus of trust and credibility, who possesses trust and credibility. Jesus' trust and credibility is supported by his heavenly Father, so is ours. In Jesus' case, when he was baptized, and then on the Mount of Transfiguration, we have two examples of God confirming who Jesus is. Uh, saying, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. That's out of Matthew 3.17 and Matthew 17.5. This is my son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. So Jesus' claims and character, his cross, his resurrection, and his ascension into heaven all point to the Father and then are confirmed by the Father. You see the momentous, outrageous thing that he has done. God himself coming into the world, taking the sins of the world upon himself. We'll be walking through this week reflecting on that. A mind-boggling thing when you consider it. And Jesus understood his mission. His mission then and there, but his ongoing mission through his disciples. He said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And I will be with you always. And so there was no misunderstanding about what Jesus was claiming and what Jesus was doing. The only misunderstanding is us misunderstanding him, misrepresenting him, ultimately often rejecting him passively or actively, rejecting him through indifference or, or feigning, I don't really know enough, I don't have enough information, or actively saying, I will never, ever put my trust in him. But Jesus is credible and worthy of our trust. He's not applying for it. It's who he is. 
He will have all authority in heaven and on earth, whether we believe that or accept that or not. Every person and every leader on earth is already accountable to Jesus. Let that sink in. Every leader, anywhere in the world, at this moment, is absolutely, unequivocally accountable to Jesus. Now you might think, well, that's absurd. They don't feel that way in Washington, D.C. They don't feel that way in Beijing. They don't feel that way in London. Perhaps they don't feel that way. And you pick every nation and every capital around the world. And you go down through all the ranks of leaders. And now you, you've gone through all the leaders and you've said to every one of them, you know, you're accountable to Jesus. Now you have to turn to every human being on the planet and say, you know what? You're accountable to Jesus. That's the outrageous, audacious thing that Jesus' entrance into Jerusalem confirms. The king has come for his own. You know, when they have pictures of this little dear old lady, 90 years old, well-dressed, always perfectly attired, with a, always with a bag in her arm, usually wearing gloves. This little lady, wherever she goes, whatever room she walks into, they say, England has entered the room. When the queen of England goes somewhere, England has entered the room. One little old lady. When Jesus came into this world, the kingdom of God entered the room. When we accept Jesus into our hearts and our lives as Lord and Savior, the kingdom of God enters that room. He inhabits us. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. Not because we're coerced, but because we are compelled. Not because we're converse, coerced, but because we are compelled. Why? Because that's who he is. He's that good. He's that true. He is God come to rescue his creation. I love the way the Apostle Paul says it. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but, to, but each of you to the interests of the others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. The highest example of, of leadership we know. The highest embodiment, personification of, of trust and credibility that we know. Who being in very nature, God did not consider equality with God something to be used as his own advantage. To his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant. He made himself nothing. It's, it says, it's a word, Greek word, kenosis. He emptied himself. He poured himself out. Taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. This word servant is doulos. It means a voluntary slave, a voluntary servant. He did this because he wanted to. He didn't have to. Being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus every knee should bow. In heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is out of Paul's letter to the Philippians chapter 2. You see the power of this? We are compelled 
at some point we will be compelled to say, dear God, it's you. You are who you say you are. You did what you said you came to do. Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. You see, not coercively, but compellingly, because he's that good. He is that true. This is the Jesus who deserves our trust and credibility. This is what Palm Sunday proclaims and celebrates. It's not that the church or any other power rules the world, it's that Jesus does. <laughs> it's his world, first and foremost. He allows us to inhabit it. He allows leaders to exercise authority. We're to, we're to take that authority seriously in all leaders. And at the same time as we support our leaders, we hold them accountable because they are accountable to Jesus, whether they admit that or not. You can separate church and state. You can't separate either from Jesus. So David writes to his his fellow leaders. Therefore, he says in Psalm 2, You kings, be wise, be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and celebrate his rule with trembling. With trembling because you're in abject terror? No, trembling because it's such a high and holy responsibility that has been entrusted to you. And your trust and credibility as a leader, it's a high and holy calling. If you're a husband, you have a high and holy calling. If you are a wife, you have a high and holy calling. If you're a parent, likewise. If you're responsible for anything or anyone, you have a high and holy calling. Take that seriously, David says. The Apostle Paul instructs Timothy, a young leader for whom he is a mentor. He says, watch your life and doctrine closely. Persevere in them, because if you do, you'll save both yourself and your hearers. Well, what does that mean? Our life is what we say. Here's who I am. Here's what I want to do. Our doctrine is what we believe. Does our life and our doctrine sync together congruently? Is there a big disconnect between who we say we are and what we do? Is what Paul's saying. Now notice, he doesn't say, you know, be perfect. Watch your life and doctrine closely and be perfect. He says, and persevere. Why? Because he knows that there's a big gap between what we say we want to do and what we can actually do. All of us fall short, right? We're, we're mortal, fallible human beings. So perfection isn't the goal. Perseverance is a goal. Perseverance is continuing in a course of action in the face of difficulty with little or no prospect for success. Now that sounds dismal, except it's not. It's faithful, not dismal. Rather than saying, I'm going to control my image and project perfection or scapegoat and blame everybody else for my lack of it, I'm going to say, I'm going to persevere. Why would I be able to do that? Because perfection is not my goal. Perfection is Christ's work in us. That's what Christ came to do. He came to do the impossible for us, but what is absolutely possible for him. That's why Paul can say, hey, watch your life of doctrine closely. Persevere in them. Because as God does his work in you and through you, it's going to inspire other people. That gift of salvation will go through you and out from you. You see, that's the power of us humbling ourselves before the, God, the Lord and saying, God, meet me where I am. Hosanna, save me, help me. Do your work in me and through me. So seeing yourself in Christ is how you live for Christ. So in Christ, we practice empathy and compassion for ourselves and others. We accept counsel and correction. We lament our setbacks, our setbacks and we celebrate our progress. We worship, pray, study his word, become wise, and express genuine 
gratitude. What does that sound like? It sounds like people who are alive and growing. I have no idea how to be a man, but for God showing me and God bringing other men into my life to, to, and women to, to help me become a, a better man, a fully developed man. I have no idea how to be a husband, but for God teaching me through my wife, through my, my brothers. I don't know how to be a parent. I mean, I have aspirations for all that, but I don't really know how to do it. Nobody knows how to do it. But as we get into the midst of it, rather than pretend that we got it all together, we say, I'm going to learn how to persevere and let God's work in me teach me how to be what I aspire to be, what he has created me to be. See how freeing this is? I'm free to confess my absolute need for his absolute grace. I'm free to ask for help. I'm, I'm free to say, yeah, I, I, I tried, it uh, didn't work. I, I got that wrong. It keeps us in the game. Anything else or anything less takes us out of the game. Let me ask you this question. Are you trustworthy? Are you credible? How would you rate your credibility and your trustworthiness? Hard question, isn't it? Jesus said this. Uh, Luke documents it in Luke 16. Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. Our Lord and Savior, the King of all creation, wants to teach us how to be trustworthy and have credibility. He who is in, in his own being absolutely trustworthy and credible wants to teach us and empower us through his Holy Spirit to be likewise. Are you up for that? Are you up for that? Maybe you've been living that way and experiencing it, and you would say, of course, it's the only way I can imagine living. Maybe, though, you're, you're saying, I don't know if it's possible for that to happen to me. You're too compromised. Maybe you're just too stubborn and prideful to admit your absolute need for this. When our children were growing up, we told them we wanted to give them all the freedom that they could handle. We said, we want to give you all the freedom you can handle at every age and stage through your life. We saw our kids on a, sort of an 18-year exit plan. They get off to college, get on with their lives. We just have wonderful relationships with our kids. They're far beyond college. They're married, starting families of their own. But we wanted to give them that freedom. And once they understood that we really wanted to give them that freedom, uh, it made them much more responsible for their own life and how they handled their freedom. You see, that's what God does with us. He wants to develop our capacity to be trustworthy, to have credibility. Not because we're faking it, projecting it through some false image, but because that's the work he's doing in us. An authentic, genuine work that teaches us how to be trustworthy and credible as he is. So in this life, we cry out, blessed is the Lord, Hosanna, help me, save me. And he does. He will never leave you or forsake you. He is with you. He is for you. <laughs> Let that sink in. He is with you and he is for you. He knows you better than you know yourself or anybody else knows you. And he's still for you and with you. He wants the best for you. And he possesses perfect credibility and is worthy of your trust. Be worthy of his. I leave you with this thought. Take a deep dive into Holy Week. This week that we know is Holy Week, starting today with Palm Sunday, culminating uh, next Sunday on Easter Sunday.
Take a deep dive. What does that look like? Well, uh, read the last part of every one of those four Gospels. About a, a, a third of each Gospel approximately uh, uh, is, is the last week of Jesus' life. Take time just to read the last few chapters in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. That's, that's, a, that's the first um, step toward taking a deep dive. And then we're going to send you some content this week about uh, how to get the most out of Maundy Thursday, an explanation for what that means. Uh, and we're going to send that to you. Take, take that uh, to heart. That'll be part of your deep dive. Join us Friday at 5 p.m. at La Jolla Community Church. Uh, outside we'll be doing a really fantastic, socially distanced, safe, but very powerful reflection on Good Friday uh, from about 5 to 6, 5 to just about 5 to 5.45, and then on Easter Sunday at 9 a.m., come worship with us. Take a deep dive into Holy Week. Seize this moment to celebrate your King. He loves you. He wants you to know His love in practical ways now and forever. So Lord Jesus, I thank you for that. I thank you for the love that you pour into us. I thank you for the trust and, and credibility you have that allows us to pour our hearts uh, into you, to pour out our hearts to you, to allow you to pour into us all that, the goodness that you want to fill us with. Lord, to give us the capacity to persevere as you do your work of perfecting us, developing us, bringing us to completion. I thank you for each one watching this message, listening to it. I pray that they would take this to heart, knowing that uh, you have a heart for them and, and, and that their heart for you uh, is greatly rewarded, as never in vain. We thank you and praise you for this. In Jesus' holy name, amen. So now, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you, that you might reflect his light wherever you go. I pray that the Lord gives you everything you need to do everything he wants you to do, to experience and express this incredibly beautiful life that he's developing in you both now and forevermore. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.